0: Welcome to the SeaWorld the Conservatives podcast. Today we'll be talking about standards in conservation. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire,
1: And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hey!
0: Hello! Today we're going to talk about standards, which sounds very official, doesn't it? It does. It does. It sounds very grown-up. It's a very grown-up topic in some ways. It's yeah. like Yes let's think about standardisation. But to help us think about those things, we've got two wonderful guest hosts uh, with us today. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves to our listeners?
2: Okay, well, I'm Isabel Griffin. I'm currently the Head of Conservation at the National Galleries of Scotland, where I've been for the past three years. Before that, I did a long stint at the National Gallery of Scotland and a long stint at the National Trust of Scotland and little bits in other places and I also did a PhD about 10 years ago a kind of heritage science and built heritage so that's quite good because that's given me another dimension to draw on Um, and I've only been involved with standards for about the past year or two whereas David is completely an old hand. so I'll I'll hand over to David and he can do his bit.
3: Well I'm David Lee and uh, I've been in conservation all my long working life and I'm now retired But immediately previously, I used to work for ICON. I was also Secretary General for IIC for a few years, and before ICON UK Principal of West Dean College, various other things. used to teach archaeological conservation in Cardiff and started off as a conservator at Southampton University, having studied initially the Institute of Archaeology in London and been involved in the standards from UKIC days, when UKIC decided it would like to take part in this, in the exciting project of European standards, which then become British standards.
1: That's a good list. It's really
0: good to have you both here. How did you guys even get involved with this? I mean, uh, David, now we've start, we started unpicking a little bit of how you got involved. Isabel, how did, how did this start for you?
2: I suppose I've always kind of kept an eye on the standards and because I've worked in preventive conservation most of my career there are a lots of standards that are really relevant to preventive conservation but just in the last year or two um, I became more interested in how standards are created and wanting to become part of that process. So David introduced me to the mysteries of the European Committee which deals with Standards for the conservation of cultural heritage, and then the British Standards Committee B560, which is the UK's body that works together to influence the creation of these European standards.
0: Oh man, already we're here with like my head is swimming with like abbreviations and all sorts of things. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking about this because I was talking to a friend who isn't a conservator, and I was like, We're going to talk about standards next, and I, I think she was a bit baffled, and I was like, I mean, everyone's in contact with standards all the time. If we look even outside of conservation, it governs every bit of our lives, but we may not necessarily be super aware of it. And the thing that immediately sprung to mind was paper sizes for some reason. <laughs> paper sizes, you know, like uh, the A4 that you're used to and stuff like that. That that's a standard. Standards are actually all around us. Battery sizes. There's all sorts of things that govern daily, you know, daily life really. And these these might be international standards or regionally conceived or or nationally. It was sort of intriguing to start sort of unpicking how how much it impacts sort of everyday life in you know a non professional context, it's like, no, standards are all around us all of the time. It's just we don't necessarily, maybe we're not super aware of it, or it's so normal that we don't necessarily think about it. So standards are very much around us all of the time. Don't worry if you're already freaked out and thinking, I don't know anything about standards. Actually, you you probably do.
3: I like your your opening, that what we're really doing is tapping into something that's much bigger than conservation. Yeah, Industries and Products and commercial world and the, the medical world, everywhere you look, the scientific world, there are standards and people take them just as normal. We, as conservators, have been feeling a bit strange about tapping into this for the last 15 years. But actually, we won't, you know, another 15 years, we'll just think it an absolute normal Way of going about things, and perhaps worth saying that when that there's no effort here to standardise the way in which conservation is done, because that's what conservators know how to do. That's what they're trained to do, and this is not meant to undermine their expertise. But there are certain aspects of what we do which could do with with agreement on how we proceed, and how we express what we do to the outside world. And although we talk about European standards, they are British standards. Yeah. And it's a way of getting some sort of measure of agreement on how we go about aspects within the UK.
0: That's another thing. I went down a right rabbit hole, guys. So I'm Swedish originally. I am still Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> Living in Britain. Um, the Swedish Institute for Standards, it started in 1922, what my note says. And I remember talking about Swedish standards a lot growing up, like it was it was sort of unnaturally talked about things. It was like the little kite marks on different things. It's sort of a very natural part of the world. And it was definitely something not taught at school, maybe in exact detail, but more of a, you should have an awareness that this is how we establish things in the world and that this is, this is what we do. I, I sort of naturally had like an inkling of the sort of the amount of work that must go into just how we, I don't know, how we pick up a carton of milk in the store or whatever. You know, all of the things that make that carton of milk end up in my hand are all governed by different types of standards and stuff. You know, it can be for the refrigeration unit that it's in or uh, the way the packaging is made or the environmental certification of the way the cows were treated. All of those things are like all governed by standards. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if, Every nation has, like, their own standards body, and that's almost true, actually. I think there were some very rare exceptions, but mostly every country on Earth has its own standard-setting body of some description, and they can then be members of regional ones like the European Committee or or, or international ones, uh, you know, if they want to be. I have really fell down a rabbit hole here with loads of lists and just like, oh, look at all these things that people do. It's so fascinating. But it's great to see that this is the sort of thing that's sort of being done everywhere. It's oddly wholesome that it's, it's something that happens everywhere. And it's oddly nice to think about that level of international cooperation, especially in these times. That's a, that's a thing.
2: I think that's a really good point, important point though, about the international collaboration. That was something that I attended recently, the plenary meeting of the, the European committee that deals with standards for the conservation of cultural heritage. And I was really struck there by how willing people were. To work together. not always easy because different European nations may have quite different approaches to conservation and different takes on it. But yes, you know, the point of creating these standards is to try and find common ground. And another point that David w- made was that, that being part of those discussions is, is good and healthy for the UK because it forces us to question our own approaches. makes us stronger and better. So
0: it's all good. Yeah.
3: Each individual published standard is the result of probably three years of consultation and meetings of working groups, combining uh, members from various countries, I mean a minimum of five countries and often more, actually meeting either physically or these days by Zoom or whatever, and negotiating a way through our different approaches. And it is really instructive to be, uh, and I've been involved in some of these and, and lots of others have, to find out how other people Think about not just their conservation, but even their attitude to the cultural heritage and how it's, how it's used, how artifacts are used or displayed. So it's actually a very healthy business. And of course, we all get a chance, not just those attending or working groups, but everyone can at various stages as the drafts come public. Anybody can tap in and comment on the drafts at various stages before they get Agreed and finalised and then published as British standards.
0: Oh, that's quite a transparent process, really. That's really nice.
3: It is. It is.
1: Can we explain the process via a, exam- a specific example? Ooh, how specific do you want to get? Well, I mean, like, if you give us an example of a topic and then how is that taken forward and to whom? What kind of comments might you get? What kind of, you know... Um, I was going to say disagreements, but I I think that (laughs) brings the negative side of or something and I haven't heard anything negative so so far I think there'll be a certain
0: level of you know herding cats in in any direction here because uh, obviously there will be disagreements and I think that's just part of any process of agreeing anything there will be disagreements obviously but it's great that mm-hmm. you've been saying that it sort of helps maybe make people question what they are doing just because you disagree with someone doesn't <laughs> that can still be fruitful True. you know it, it might be that you look at what the way you are doing things so that uh, you're adding something to a discussion that maybe no one had even considered and you know the argument could be what We'd never thought of that oh that's embarrassing (laughs) um but you know (laughs) yeah i think even in if disagreement can be part of the process because it will be that can still be a fruitful thing you know
3: yeah perhaps i should just explain that the notion of a standard a title a topic doesn't just come out of thin air. Somebody somewhere in Europe has to put an idea forward. So this often happens at, at meetings that Isabel's referred to of the main plenary meeting of all the European countries who gather together about 30 of them, where someone comes up with an idea, tables an idea and discuss. And then there may or may not be agreement that, that it could go forward to become preliminary work item. That means that then an initial draft or scoping of the of the uh, projected idea is is developed. And then at a later stage, that may or may not be accepted as an actual working item, a new working item. So that could take months, maybe a year or so, before the new working item is then ready for work. Then a working group comes together. Because the people who commented said, yes or no, I'm prepared to take part in this fascinating topic. And then the working group gets going. So they come up with a draft, the first draft. They bash that, bash that around. Then it will go out to consultation. Then the comments will come back. And there may be pages and pages and pages where people get really engaged. So, you know, France and Germany and Switzerland and everybody piles in with their comments. And you can imagine on a single draft document. there can be hundreds of comments and there can i have be sat there gone through twenty or thirty pages of the comments that are hating and we have to whittle them down and compromise when necessary, accept or reject. And you actually say on the document, which goes back to the contributors, whether something's been the comment has been accepted or rejected, and if so, why? And then that this sort of iterative process goes on through two, maybe three cycles, including a wide consultation before a a final meeting puts together a final draft. And then if that gets okayed by everybody, then it goes forward to the national bodies for publication. Sorry, I, I said I'd talk about an example. So the example that comes, springs to mind for me is. I was drawn into the one on that's recently been published on uh, the investigation of painted surfaces, which was an initiative between Helen Hughes and I think the Swedish delegates so there were there were differences here in approach, and the u k and and many other countries' approach was to use uh, microscopic samples and study them under the microscope and do appropriate tests on the uV or whatever and that was one approach, but there was uh, another approach which was fostered by a German delegate, who didn't necessarily represent all people in this field in Germany, or all investigators, this line was that you, with a magic camera these days, technologically, you can just look at the surface. You don't need to take samples and cut microscopes. So that caused a little bit of discussion, as you can imagine. And I think the final standard ended up with a compromise that said, well, you can either do this, or you can either do that. So that's the sort of struggle that can go on. Isabel, you you familiar with any other examples?
2: I think that one's a good example as well of how long it can take. I was looking back, Helen Hughes wrote an article for Icon News about the development of that standard. She says that the working group started meeting in 2016 and met nine times. And then in 2018, the group almost abandoned the project when an early draft was was rejected in the public ballot. But, you know, they they kept at it. And finally, 2022, I think it's either just been published or about to be published. So you can, yeah, you can see how long it takes. And with that working group starting meeting in 2016, there was probably, even before that, there might have been a period of several years where within individual countries people were kind of working up ideas and getting to the point where a working group was ready to go so yeah it's not quick <laughs> wow an interesting aspect of it for me is is when standards have been out out there for five years and then come to the point when when the decision has to be made as whether they should, they should be confirmed which may, means catch as they are or rejected which means put in the bin I assume or <clears throat> reviewed I had assumed prior to attending the CEM plenary that probably everything would be reviewed. Five years is quite a long time. Why wouldn't you? But what became apparent in that meeting is that because it's such a lot of work to review a standard and because then for everybody who's got that standard sitting on their shelf, it would become out of date and they would have to go and buy another one. The decision's never taken lightly to review. Quite often, to, to make the case for a review, a country will have to do quite a lot of preliminary work to build up a good a good argument for why it needs to be reviewed.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I was going to ask how often these things are likely to change because, I, you know, you do have to pay money for these things. Well, usually, anyway. And uh, I was sort of curious, like, how often does the review process happen? And then what, what's the implication then for having to update books that these are part of and all those other bits?
3: Yeah, so every five years they have to be reviewed. And the f- sort of factors that people are taking into account is, well, how useful has it been? Has anybody bought it? And has thinking changed or, or practice changed, which it might well have done? But as Isabel says, you know, people do think very carefully about doing that because of the investment in everybody's time and the investment in buying new, new versions.
0: Yeah, certainly a balance to be had there. I'm interested because now that with this sort of extreme rapid advance of technology, whether we'll have to see a lot more updates actually even though we might not necessarily want to, because, I mean, the the pace of technology is astonishing. I suppose the slight, um, I was going to catch this as a positive, but I'm not sure it is. Uh, Maybe conservation is a little bit slow at adopting new technology sometimes, usually because we're not a very well-funded sector.
1: Mm, That's what I was thinking about as well.
0: Maybe less cause for alarm in some ways, because we're actually quite, yeah, quite slow at... Actually, adopting new technology, but it's interesting to think that maybe that will be cause for almost more reviews or more changes because things are moving very fast, in that we're discovering new ways of doing things all the time. Sort of intriguing, really.
2: I mean, a good example of one where it is going to be reviewed because of changes in technology is the one about lighting um, for indoor exhibitions. You could imagine that you know, in five years, things have moved on a lot. So. That was yeah. that's recently been agreed. That it's going to be reviewed. So that process has just begun for that one. And I think another area where changing attitudes may necessitate review is, you know, with increasing concerns about environmental sustainability. That that has been a factor driving. Quite a lot of reviewing of standards, mm-hmm. you know, particularly obviously the ones around environmental conditions. The landscape we're working in now and the things we're having to take into account weren't such an issue yeah. 10 years ago. So we were starting to think about those things, but not in the same way that we are now. So that's driven a lot of change as well.
0: It sort of makes an interesting point for almost not future proofing, but sort of maybe using language that sort of accounts for maybe that sort of change in mm almost putting in a clause like, well, if the climate change is then this level of catastrophic, then maybe we need to consider these things without a review. Okay, almost like future-proofing the the spec a little bit.
3: There we are. I think you've thought of another possible standard, haven't you? Oh, God. uh, Perhaps it's worth uh, mentioning some of the things that are currently being worked on.
0: Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear that.
3: So These are active work items. These are ones that haven't yet been published. But maybe, if 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 everyone agrees on, there's one on cultural deposits. That's where you've got stuff buried in the ground Uh and you want to keep it there or rebury it. What are the agreed uh, criteria for doing that? Mm. You've mentioned lighting. Also, exhibition showcases. There's one currently being developed for the technical aspects of that. Well, there's one on management of movable cultural heritage. Uh, And then there are quite a lot of technical ones. And uh, one or two other things that are being worked on uh, is the characterisation of water or wood. So, you know, this is a big issue. You've got wet wood in the ground. You excavate it. Then what is it? In what condition is it? Therefore, what sort of treatment will you need, need to manage it? There's another one online which hasn't hasn't a preliminary work item or work item status, which is on documentation. Broad criteria for uh, for documentation. I think they're quite interesting when it when, when it comes to fruition,
1: and is that museum documentation or specific conservation documentation or everything?
3: Well, there is already museum documentation that says you've got the spectrum standard, so it would be something that mm-hmm. in a sense conservatives could perhaps hold on to that that kind of standard. It would be about right. conservation yeah what a, we've all done documentation according to all sorts of different rules and movement. Maybe that's all right. But on the other hand, if we want to look back in coming years to what was effective and what materials were used and what techniques were used, if we want to be sure about those, to, to have a standard way of having described our condition or having formulated our condition could be extremely useful for accumulating the data in the future.
0: mm mm-hmm. This is particularly timely for me because I just watched a watched a sort of documentation webinar type thing where it was more about gathering data from people's databases and then also for conservation. Yeah. And the fact is that because it isn't standardized, that's an absolute nightmare because try to, I don't know, merge three... conservation condition let's say condition reports uh databases from three different institutions good luck they will not have the same fields. they will not mention the same (laughs) things they will not use the same language some will be on bits of paper and post-it notes and some of them will be digital (laughs) and it's just like it's actually a remarkably big problem that we sort of don't talk about very much so actually i'm very pleased to hear about that one (laughs)
2: And that's a good example, Jenny, of where uh, I think that's the icon conservation docu- the icon documentation network isn't it? So where that group is is feeding into the work that Chris Woods is leading on to, to prepare the ground for this European standard. Having input from across the profession into these standards is really important,
0: sometimes not just the profession because the the sort of the, the point of the talk was sort of also that we sort of need to talk to people who understand databases and tech people, people who mm-hmm. understand what metadata means. Because yeah, if you launch that set of words into uh, a room full of conservatives, half of them explode and <laughs> this, the rest of them just look confused. I'm sorry, I'm being very mean now, but it's, <laughs> it's a profession, we might not be the most, not the most tech savvy, maybe. And to, to make sure that we're data literate, that's, that's a bit to of me. a job, really. <laughs> we do need to talk to like, Adjacent industries that we would be linking into. So, you know, uh, we need people mm. who can analyze data mm-hmm. and who know what data standardization even is. That's exactly the point. Like, making standards like this makes us talk to those different groups that actually we really need to be talking to, which is beautiful. Yeah.
3: Well, there's a good example there of the, of the birth of a standard because uh, Thanassis Velios, who, who, who helps run the, uh, the ICON network that we're talking about, he, he sort of helped get this going together with, with Christian Barr and um, Jane Henderson. And I
0: love all of those people. Or
3: <laughs> two others. And, and, we, and we, we just had an informal mirror group, as you might call it. This happens quite a lot, that you get a national mirror group. Mm-hmm. And we just chatted we just away. And eventually, the masses came up with a broad outline. And it was that broad outline that was then put forward to the plenary meeting, that then said, okay, this is worth looking into, let's go to the next stage.
0: That's how it starts, isn't it? That's the birth of a. That's how that's how a standard is eventually born.
3: <laughs> yeah, and nurtured by national mirror groups. And the yeah. UK has run quite a few mirror groups. The Committee B560, which is the, the British Standard Committee for this area of conservation, cultural heritage, intangible cultural heritage, is one sort of national mirror group. But there are informal mirror groups, a group of us may get together uh, of like-minded people and thrash through our responses to ideas and drafts. And-
0: a mirror group must be a bit more formalised than just uh, a group of conservatives in a pub, right?
3: <laughs> I don't think there are any rules about it, actually.
1: <laughs> Something occurred to me earlier, and that is the issue of diversity in conservation and the issue of diversity in decision-making for these standards, How do we ensure that the group of people that are involved in Making the decisions on, you know, the, the, because what we're talking about is the, the broad outlines of approaches to specific things in conservation. Those are the large documents. Um, for people listening who aren't conservators, that's, that's, you know, it's not so much a set of rules as, as a, you know, set of approaches and, you know, how do I do this? Okay, so this is, this is, the, these are the ways that I could approach this specific task or this set of tasks or whatever. Those are all based on decisions that, the mirror groups make, how do we make sure that those decisions are made by a diverse set of people?
3: Well, you touched on an important point, and that is I think we have not been all that good or successful over the years in promoting the idea that there's a standard out there to be discussed. Would anybody like to take part? And I think this is something that the Icon in particular could have a much more active role in. It's nobody's fault, but, it, but it's a, a valid comment. And I think by promoting it and putting it out there, saying, look, this, this is a topic, would you like to take part? And, and asking anybody to volunteer to take part, that seems to me as good as we can get you. Whether on the diversity front you could do better... I'm not quite sure how you go
0: about it mm-hmm. i mean it, it is interesting because theres mm, basically you do have to volunteer to be on it if you see what I mean. like you do have to opt yes. in it's not like it's a committee um elected or anything like that it's no. you do have to opt in so i I guess there it's it's a sort of a two pronged problem in that you need to be aware that it's happening so that's that's basically marketing um making sure that that, that process doesn't seem mm. scary it would be a would be a thing for for me you know (laughs) if it sounds like hey would you like to be in a standards meeting with lots of white men in suits where
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh please Um, uh, I,
0: I would be like no (laughs) but but you know if you if you can if you can sort of make the prospect of contributing less scary i think that would certainly help i mean in some ways that's what we're trying to do on this podcast isn't it we're trying to make it less scary um here, here we are talking about what those processes look like maybe empower new people who come in um as well and like really lift them up that that would be a good start i think i already read something about how you reimburse people if they need to go to meetings and stuff like that. I feel like I read that somewhere. At at least the financial bit is sort of sorted there because obviously cost would be another barrier to entry, for example, for, you know, being a part of these things. So people need to know that that these things are going on Mm. and uh, that they're not super scared to go to. And we to try to remove as many barriers as possible. Those are probably good starts, at least, to getting getting more involvement. But it's a good point about having different voices uh, involved.
3: Oh, that's a really good start, Isabel. You you've run these focus groups. This feedback you've been getting from them has been really interesting. Do you want to say a bit about those? Of you?
2: So to try and get get a bit more of a feeling from the UK conservation community about. The extent to which they're using standards and what they like about them, what they think works, what they don't like about them, what they think the gaps are. I held a series of of one-off focus group meetings looking at different areas. So I had one looking at heritage science, one looking at paper conservation, artefacts conservation and audio visual collections and preventive conservation, which had the biggest turnout by far. And they were partly by invitation, but with anybody who, who found out about them being invited to join as well. So they showed they gave a lot of information about what people about which standards people are using, um, but also about the barriers to people in terms of getting hold of standards, kind of confusion around sometimes around what standards were for and what people were supposed to do with them. quite a range of exposures to standards. Some students said they had never once been told about um, conservation standards during their conservation training and others had had a lot about it. So uh,
1: quite a mixed picture. Mm. There is a difference, and perhaps we can outline this for the listeners that aren't familiar with them. There's a difference between the things that you can access for free on the ICON website that are the conservation standards that are, I suppose, conservation standards Oh God, what was the word I thought of earlier? codes, conservation codes of approaches, you know, you will consider these aspects when approaching this conservation, you will, you know, how will it be displayed? How will, you know, what is this surface, the origin of this surface? And is it part of the history of the blah, 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 all of those things that we probably are all highly aware of, those things are different. Those are, well, freely accessible, but different to the conservation docu- standards documents that we've been discussing the development of and those ones are the ones you pay for you can also get books of them
0: there are a couple of different like uh, best ofs no uh, compilations um yeah compilations is, is <laughs> all the greatest hits um uh, y- you can buy a couple of those yeah. um for for considerably less money but it's still you know I think it was at least 130 euros or something, and then there's probably shipping on top of that. You know, so it's not necessarily something that absolutely everyone can do. And and the, it's interesting that we're talking about cost here because you know we have sort of touched on the on the subject already. Standards do cost to buy. Uh, you do purchase them as opposed to just download them freely. And it's something that's been quite contentious in other sectors. I haven't necessarily heard that many people talk about it in conservation as such. I think it's more of an accepted fact. Um, you, You may have different feelings about that.
2: I think it's really important to make the point, though, that although they do cost a lot if you want to buy them and have your own copy sitting on your shelf... Anybody in the UK can join their national library. So I'm in Scotland, the National Library of Scotland, English people could join the British Library, National Library of Wales for the Welsh, and then you can get at them all for free. You can't download them, but you can read them for free anytime you like. And the joining is painless. You just have to type your name and address and you're away. So within five minutes you could be reading them all for free.
1: Mm,
0: really good point. They are not Exclusively pay gated as such, so it, it's a really mm-hmm. really good point. Uh, and again, uh, your employer may actually have access to these. For example, um, the, I've worked in several places where they just have them.
2: Yeah, and we were. I was finding that smaller organisations and freelancers, very few freelancers, were aware of how to get their hands on standards and, and were, you know, exasperated by the fact that they couldn't afford to
1: buy them. So again, for people like that, I would just refer them to the library websites. That's really good. Yeah. I suppose that's a really good bit of advice that I'm taking away from today. Well, if you're sitting in your conservation lab thinking, oh, I wonder where those are kept. (laughs) Better have a look. Do that. That's a great idea. If you've got new starters in your your workplace, conservation new starters, encourage them to have a look. Tell them where they are. Tell them, you know, oh, we don't actually have any copies of these because they're You know, way out of our budget or whatever. Here's our library account or whatever, or this is the, these are the ways to join them, have a read through and sort of at the very least, you know, become aware of the kinds of ones that are available to look at just reading the titles is really interesting but well obviously it's a really good resource that's why it happens chat
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I sense that it can probably be a little bit forgotten about if you see what I mean And I don't know if that's maybe maybe part of the feedback that you've gotten Isabel as well that
2: um... yeah I mean I think that's I think that's fair to say I mean when I first kind of looked at the long list of standards there were some um, areas where I had cheerily gone away and written a policy in the past without <laughs> being aware that this standard existed. now I would always yeah. of course do it the other way around but yeah if you don't if you can't if you're not easily aware of what they are how you get your hands on them then you're less likely to use them aren't you but they are for things like writing policies, devising new ways of working, coming up with a new documentation system, all those things. You know, such a kind of useful resource. People also talked a lot about using them for procurements, you know, that say you're, when I used to work at the National Library of Scotland and when we were procuring our box board, there was always a lot of checking which standards we had to tell people to meet because otherwise it's very difficult to compare products from different... Of
1: course, I suppose that's why there's specific conservation suppliers that people go to if they don't have the time or the expertise to make really specific decisions. Mm-hmm.
3: There is a standard on procurement, and that's really quite useful. It's, you, know, you don't have to follow it, but it gives a good framework of how to go about, go about procuring things. And These are really useful documents. For...
2: A point that people made when they were talking about using standards was that often if they're writing a policy and they can reference a standard, it gives it a bit more clout and makes senior managers more likely to think, oh, they've done their homework, they know what they're talking about.
3: An interesting uh, aspect that I got involved in at an early stage, maybe because I'm a bit of a a nerd, was was the general terminology. Once we started discussing, particularly with others in Europe, but um, even within the UK, we actually started to grapple with the words we use in conservation. You would be amazed, or maybe not, how differently we have been using words in our profession. And so there's a general general terms and definitions to standard which I think is really useful to have on the shelf when you're you're grasping for what's the the right word. All these standards are produced in three languages. So if one were working internationally, you'd also be able to cross-reference with the German and the French equivalents. So it's really quite a useful tool. But there are other terminology standards as well. There's one, there's a glossary on technical terms concerning mortars, for instance, to be very specific, for masonry and renders and plasters um, And there are other terminologies and glossaries in there that have been, have been developed or will be developed. As I say, maybe I'm a nerd, I find that, process of, of pulling out meanings from words. Really fascinating. Maybe not everyone does, but it's a useful tool, I think.
1: You say, oh, maybe maybe I'm just a nerd, but that, uh, conservation terminology has been on the, the secret spreadsheet of episode ideas for at least three years. So perhaps we should, perhaps we should double down on this and, and, and get that out. <laughs> Embrace the nerdiness. <laughs> <laughs> Would this be a good time to talk about the conservation standards that are more similar to the conservation codes that we mentioned earlier?
2: What do you mean, like
1: the the
2: icon code of ethics
1: and so on? And those things like that? Yeah, basically it's it's the, we were talking earlier about the the confusion of what the conservation standards are and we were talk we've been talking about the the long documents that are developed and on broad topics whereas the if you were on the conservation standards section of the website of Icon Institute of Conservation in the UK there is a whole long list and a document to download on standards and they are similar to a conservation code of practice and so the ethics and the ways of decision making. And those are the ones that that I feel sort of most guided my conservation education.
3: Are those surely the standards which underlie accreditation?
1: Yeah. If one was to Google conservation standards, apart from the ones about pandas, you get to ICON.
3: Professional standards, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think they're called the ICON professional
2: standards, aren't they? And then there's a kind of an associated document called the ICON Ethical
0: Guidance. Obviously, the professional standards will be something that ICON has produced. So it's not by a uh, standards body as such. It's by our professional body who has decided to um, create a set of standards of their own. But it's, it's for accreditation and things like that.
3: Amongst the points is, I, I forget the actual phrasing, but it's part of your accreditation process is, is to be aware of and conversant with other codes and practices, which by implication is these these very British standards.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes. They are related. They're not quite the same thing. But, you know, this is this is an episode on conservation standards. So, you know, it's, it's worth a mention that we do, ICON does have mm-hmm. yeah. its own professional standards. They are a little bit interlinked you know, conservatives are supposed to have an awareness of these sorts of things and uh, hopefully we can now help feed into that a little bit on the off chance that someone's forgotten what they are or <laughs> or, or haven't been taught enough about them. You know, those, those are all things.
1: That's where I'm coming from. I'm, you know, broadening the, spe- <laughs> broadening the
2: field. <laughs> when I was doing the focus groups, I did ask, I always asked at the end what other, we talked mainly about the British standards, but then I asked what other standards people were using and i actually came up with a massively long list of other things that people are using some of which are genuinely standards and some of which are more kind of straying into the just reference material category so there's the iso standards which are the international standards Where there are again some specifically to do with conservation there was we've talked about spectrum already in the gis guidance field you know for collections management they're really important heritage scientists had loads of other stuff they had the TAPI standards which are mainly to do with paper. Um, They had the procedures for doing certain um, analytical procedures that the Royal Society of Chemistry produces. Um, They talked about the procedures that user groups for things like X-ray fluorescence and FTIR have worked up. So they had loads of extra stuff up their sleeves that they talked about. And then going back to the kind of internal environment, people talked about the Bezo Green Protocol and the icon IIC ICOM CC agreement and the ASHRAE handbook which engineers often use so there's loads of other stuff out there that ideally you should be aware of on top of all those CEN standards that you're trying to remember it's amazing where we get any work done with all the reading we have to do <laughs> and then of course where people wanted more yeah, you know, we were talking about what's eating your collections the website where people wanted more discursive information lots of examples maybe sample documentation they were finding that that standards didn't necessarily do that for them and they were looking to other kind of sources of material other people's websites oh, um, you know guidance documents the icon website has quite a lot of useful resources that give you things that that, that the European standards wouldn't necessarily give you um CCI website um the AIC wiki pages all those kind of things got mentioned you know people just brain dumped all this all the sources of information but 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 they came they they came back to the standards in a way because people said it's overwhelming the amount of stuff that we're supposed to look at as you say Jenny how do we ever do any work and it's quite nice to know that all that stuff's there but then if you're floundering around and a bit confused you can go back to the standard as the 10-page document or so that will give you the absolute baseline stuff.
0: Arguably, that is sort of one of the almost problems of living in the glorious time of information technology, is that there's a lot of stuff out there.
3: It's worth mentioning that there are these other standards which have been in existence for longer than the, as it were, the one, conservationists we're talking about. They're also... Uh, overseen by the same B, BSI committee, B560, for buildings. I mean, the architects have had a guide to the conservation of historic buildings uh, for years and years, I think it's back at least to 2013. Uh, and they have other buildings, Code of Practice for Cleaning the Surface Repair of Buildings, Surface Repair of Natural Stone, etc. And A related point now I'm not mentioning BSI was, is the committee we've referred to, B560, which we haven't really explained, has representatives of quite a few UK bodies, of significant ones. So just to to read out a sample of them, um, the British Library, the Bodleian Libraries, Cardiff University, Cathedral and Church Buildings Division, English Heritage, Historic England, well, sorry, (laughs) duplicate there, uh, Historic Environment Scotland, Historic World Palaces, ICON, Institute of Civil Engineers, ICOMOS, National Trust, R.I.B.A., the, The Architects, Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, Stone Federation. So actually the representation on that committee that helps o- oversee the development of the UK standards is, is quite widespread. So some of us are there as individuals or co-opted or say we represent such an, such an organization. So it's quite quite a wide range of people. Not everyone attends.
2: That's pretty good. I think it's an important point as well David was just mentioning about the building conservation elements. The, the conservation standards are kind of overlaps on all, in, in all, on all sides with other areas so there's a lot of overlaps with, with archaeology. When I was talking to the heritage scientists a lot of the standards they're using some of which are British standards are not necessarily on you know the, the list that appears on the ICON website because obviously they're pulling things in from all kinds of different branches of science for what for what they're doing and in particular we were talking about modern collections and digital collections with the with av collections audio visual material they're again drawing on a whole range of standards which i hadn't really even heard of until they started listing them for me so conservation is by no means a discrete little bubble is it It overlaps with all these different areas
0: which is good that's the point isn't it like (laughs) if we were just one tiny little bubble what What's almost the point, you know? Like the fact that we do collaborate with other professions and that there's overlap and that essentially we're sort of part of a larger Venn diagram is that's good. That's the way it's supposed to be.
1: Yes,
2: and I think kind of having those conversations with allied disciplines could just be an awfully a really good way of getting up to speed with, with some of the issues you may be facing in your conservation practice. So the the, the meeting we had where we talked about audiovisual standards, we had some conservators in the room who were all saying, I don't know, I can't find any information about how to look after my audio-visual collections. All hopeless, I'm in despair. And then there were people there who, who were AV technicians and they said, but have you not heard of this and this and this? And we all noted it down cheerily and it was very productive. Other people have the work and we just need to shamelessly borrow it in the focus groups we were talking about gaps in the standards and whether there were any areas where people felt there, sh- there was information that they really would like to see um, and that wasn't there anymore and there was quite a lot of sentimental harking back to PAS 198 which obviously is no longer current but which had a lot of material specific information for mixed collections which people had obviously found really really useful so I think it was felt that maybe that was a gap to be explored in future years to try and feed in through British Standards Institute that that people would like to see something that kind of somehow addresses the gap left by PAS 198.
3: There's another point here which we should emphasise which is anyone can contribute ideas.
2: It does does actually already say that it's on the ICON website. It says UK Conservatives are invited to collaborate in the preparation of new standards and the revision of existing standards. Please email admin at icon.org.uk That's all people have to do.
1: Hello, so we are here with um, one of our favourite podcast contributors uh, who you've definitely heard before but I'm going to kindly ask her, could you introduce yourself please and tell us about your involvement in standards?
4: Hello, so I am Secretly, Jane Henderson, and I'm, um, amongst the other things I introduced myself as, I'm also involved in standards at a British and European level. So, I'm currently the vice chair of the BSI work um, group that deals with conservation standards for portable cultural heritage. So, that's any standards that come out of Britain. And I'm a member of a technical committee of the European standards body, which looks at portable cultural heritage as well. And the group that I'm in is WG11, Working Group 11, and we have worked on a standard for the conservation process, we've looked at terminology, we've looked at um, something as procurement, and we are currently looking at documentation, principles of documentation, which is proving to be really interesting. So, quite a lot of standards work. And I was, back in the day, a long time ago, I had a big hand in writing benchmarks and collections care, which I still love. So what got you
1: interested, because obviously you you wear a lot of hats and you do a lot of things, as we all know, Um, what got you interested back in the day
4: in standards
1: and benchmarks?
4: So I think it's a combination, say that you were interested in standards, that's a tricky one, isn't it? um, I was doing collections care advice. And you're always trying to work out what's motivational, how to get people to move, what works, what doesn't work. And when I was doing collections, care advice, there was a standard for archives called BS 5454 that was very ubiquitous, very powerful. And it was interesting to see how that works because on the one hand, it had a huge amount of reach and domination. And on the other hand, it wasn't always for the best, in that sometimes I thought suboptimal strategies went forward because they matched the standard, but they weren't necessarily best for collections. So back in the day, I was sort of dabbling with different standards. Then I was lucky enough to be commissioned by one of the iterations of Museums and Galleries Commission or Resource or something else to... Bring together. There was three benchmarking documents in the sector: one in museums, one in archives, and one in libraries. And I think they wanted just somebody <laughs> to some to knock heads together, make them turn it into one. And thought, Who can we... <laughs> who's unpopular enough already? Let's just ask that. Oh, <laughs> Here she is. And um, so I did that. That was a really, really interesting process. And it was that start off you know, you have an argument for half an hour about something, you suddenly realise that you're using the same word completely different. So the word courier to us, you know uh, what uh, her mm-hmm. DMs and art. And for them, somebody in a motorbike helmet with a little box on the back. Oh, of course. Both perfectly reasonable uses of the word. But, um, and just, it's just always been interesting to do that. So anyway, I did that. And then later, and I believe that you are very, your um, co-host, one of your co-hosts is the wonderful, wonderful David Lee. And he, I wouldn't go as far as he, I was interested, but he sort of twisted my arm to go on the standards (laughs) committee (laughs) and I kind of thought well this will be interesting and psychologically you know sociologically interesting to watch and I must say that when I started I had no idea what was going on it was probably two years before I had the faintest clue what was happening but it was a really it has been really interesting to see what goes into doing standards moderately Mm -hmm. well and now I think I am interested in them, but I probably started doing them before I was genuinely that interested in them. I really like that
1: honesty. I think that's how a lot of things work. We have to do them and then we become interested in them because we're interested mm-hmm. people. <laughs> so I am um, in preparation for this episode, listened to your talk um, at the um, from conservation to conversation workshop at the uh, international conference in Hamburg. It's a, um, hosted by the Rotherbaum Museum, um, a group called Mark, or the museum called Mark. Um, you, This was a Zoom conference, I believe, of course, because it was in summer 2021. Mm. Everything was on Zoom. And it was very interesting. There's loads of really interesting talks, and you can find the link to this, and I will... Poke Jenny to get this this in the show notes, um, so everyone have a have a listen. One of the things you were talking about, specific, specifically one of the phrases you used, was assumed virtue and the politics of standards, um, and the relationship of origin and outcome. And I. Find that re- I found that really particularly interesting because we're recording this um, after we recorded the main episode, and one of the things that we talked a little bit about was diversity in standards and uh, the origin of standards. Um, and I was wondering whether you could talk to us a little bit more about the challenges of representation in standards and um, what we have to be careful of and what we can do to help.
4: So I think with standards, you mentioned origin, if you know who wrote them, you know what perspective they're coming from. So if you look at the, you can't avoid it, Gary Thompson, the museum environment, he's sort of absolutely upfront who he is, where he's writing, why. It's all in the book. It's wonderful, in my opinion. If you look at those standards without all that stuff, You've got a very strange document indeed. If you're running around in all these different climates saying, well, this is what a Class 1 museum in London in the 1970s should be like, and that's why you should be like that. It's, it's kind of bizarre. You know, the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the phones that we talk to, none of those things are the same as 1970s London. You know? <laughs> so why on earth would we expect that from a museum in Melbourne or, you know, Moscow or... Oh, you know, Manchester, I mean, why there's the same things? And so, but to be fair to Thompson, he never said you had to do it this way. He just said, this is how I'm doing and why. And so, in terms of that, the origin stories are really important because they show you whether people are being cautious, precautionary. Well, I know this is safe and I've got tons of resources. Or whether they're saying... I'm pretty sure we can go right up to the edge because I've done this hard science and I know exactly where the edge is. Mm-hmm. But you do need to do the hard science to go right to the edge. Or whether you say, oh, do you know what? What I mean by standards is I'm going to raise the standards. And the raising of standards might be, you know, we'll get rid of the guy who smokes in the store. <laughs> <laughs> the person who keeps their dog in the store. I've done that one. <laughs> wow. know, these are challenges I've faced. <laughs> so there's lots of things out there in terms of standards that people do mean by them. But if you want to make a standard represent a bunch of different perspectives, you need to have all those people in the room. And that sounds totally, well, of course we do that, but it's really, really hard to do. Because the more people and the more perspectives, the, more, um, the harder and harder it is to kind of navigate a path about what is true. Because most of us think that we've got a fairly good sense of what's right and wrong. You know, if you have a conversation with someone about conservation ethics or something, they'll say, oh, well, I can't really do that because it's against conservation ethics. And if you say, you know, point me where it says that, <laughs> <laughs> say that anywhere. But, you know, it's still nonetheless in our sort of sense of culture. So this, people have such sort of clear views of what's right that they sort of think, Because what I want to do helps look after the collections, and because looking after the collections is what we all agree on, therefore the way I want to do that must be right. And that's a switch. Because then you're saying, my way is the right way. And then suddenly, instead of saying, we've all got this common interest in looking after the old things, and the new things, (laughs) the pretty things, it suddenly becomes, oh, hang on a minute, if you want to be seen to be a good person, you have to do it my way. And I mean, that's a huge shift. Mm. And they are your colonial overtones. My goodness. Yeah, You can just, you know, and that's when you start hearing it and you hear this in the public. You hear in that hilarious James Acaster um, skit that, you know, about the the rope and not giving things back. You know, we've looked after it. I love that sketch. Look that up.
1: Google it. Google it, guys, (laughs) if you haven't heard that. It's hilarious.
4: Hands off, it's ours. You hear it in also, whenever there's a politician, and obviously we're both in the UK, so we hear politicians coming up with reasons why things shouldn't be given back all the time. Oh, yeah. One of the very common reasons is we've looked after it well. We've looked after it really well because the definition of looking after it well is, in what we know to be right, you know, relative humidity control, pest management. Mm -hmm. But the definition of looking after it well might be, I don't know, the place it was created to exist, mm. the function it was originally had, surrounded by the people for whom it has meaning. Those are also good ways of looking after things. I mean, if you're looking at a kid and you said, what's a good way of looking after them? Obviously, it's important to make them eat vegetables. But it's also <laughs> quite important that <to> they're <laughs> surrounded by people who love them, you know. <laughs> and I'm not sure that toothbrushing is more important than care for Mm. example, if we are looking. But then you might say, well, no, they're not human. They're just objects. And then, of course, then you're applying standards about what the meaning of an object is. So I think the standards are really interesting. If you assume that you are virtuous in intent, you can become hugely kind of steamrollery. Mm.
1: Virtuous is a difficult word.
4: Isn't it? Absolutely. And if you believe that what you're doing is for good, you know, people do all sorts of bizarre things. It's that kind of Simpsons episode, pitchfork kind of mentality, it, <laughs> know, when the villagers come out with their pitchforks and stuff. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and because they're so righteous in their anger, they can't see past the logic of the situation. Mm. Um, and I think that we in conservation always have a risk of going a little bit there because we are here for the collections. Sometimes we forget that our way isn't the only way. And I had a really useful conversation with um Colleague Goodman in um, Namibia, and he was talking about restitution and going back to collect um, actual human remains of ancestors. Mm-hmm. And someone saying, "Oh, let me just pack that up for you." And the guy saying, yeah, "No, just give it to me now. It doesn't matter if it gets broken in the suitcase. It's going home. Mm-hmm. These the, the skulls going home." And it was such—it was a real illumination because I know if I was they giving skulls back to an origin community from whom we never would have taken them. I nonetheless would be scrunching tissue without even oh, thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I would not even think about it. I'd scrunch no, them. Yeah. I would know to, I'd know to, to take off labels. I'd know something. But I'd be packing them carefully because it wouldn't even occur to me to reflect on whether that's wanted. Mm. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's so instinctive. I mean, I, I wouldn't now because I just mentioned it. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Your instinct yeah. is here to pack, to protect to encapsulate, and we do that from a good place. But it, you know, what Goodman's point was, well, you know, why? Why? It's our stuff, and we can do, it's our stuff, it's our, it's our families, it's our inheritance, it's our birthright, it's our ancestors, and you've got no right to tell us anything about it. And you had that really interview, interesting interview with Jeremy, and he said some of those things, didn't he, Jeremy Udin in one of the earlier episodes?
1: the repatriation episode in oh god season nine
4: and he was talking about some of those things that was and was really interesting so i love now looking at standards because you start to say well which of these things are things that you have to do and which of these things that you like to do and what's the difference so would you say that's how we can start to tackle the problem I think that you can write a standard for anything. The difficulty is then it's suddenly, suddenly you start saying, "Oh well, why don't you have my standard?" You pass it around, so this is dead hand mm. they use it, and then all of a sudden, somehow it suddenly becomes the correct way to do it, and then people don't mm-hmm. reflect. So these things can sort of just grow, and it doesn't really matter as long as you know there's nothing wrong with that. It's when you try to apply it out of context and somewhere else mm-hmm. that it starts to be iffy. So I think with standards, if you acknowledge who did them. What they did them for, you know, how they were adopted, who adopted them, and how you could go about changing them. Then I think you've got something you can work with. And to be fair to European standards, whatever else you say about them, they do have that. They do have that inherent accountability. It's quite um, it's a massive bureaucratic machine. But you can see who you can see, the authorising body, and then you can say, do we want European standards in our context in Australia? Do we want? You know, as you probably know, the Australian group have done quite a lot of work revising their own environmental recommendations and guidelines for their region. Um, And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's like, who better to decide what should be done in Australia than Australians? <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, your standards don't have to say this is how you do things. Your standards can say this is how we approach things. And I think that's much better. You know, like you have to consult, you have to document, you have mm. to... Um, you have to make it accessible But you don't have to do Put this A into slot B And it's amazing how Tendency to instructional We can all be mm. Instead of saying How do we enable other people To make their own decisions In their situations To the best In the best possible way mm-hmm. And there's really I mean obviously They can jump off From what Gary Thompson said or From what the Bezo group said Or from what Ashray There's no obvious reason to say, but you have to do it exactly that way. And if someone wants to come along and say, I think sustainability should be at the heart of our standards, which is what appeared in the IIC, ICOMCC declaration, then you can start to say, okay, so pure safety doesn't really work terribly well if you're trying to align it with sustainability. Because, you know, going straight down the line, we know this is guaranteed to be safe. It's going to be more energy and resource intense than saying We're pretty confident we can go up to this edge and we might have a tiny bit of loss. Um, And these are all just context decisions, aren't they? Put the context back in, admit who's doing things for what, attempt to have more people in the room. And even being there requires resource, it requires time, it requires money, it requires travel, internet connection. As soon as you put these things in, you begin selective, aren't you?
0: Today I'm reviewing Greener Solvents in Conservation, an introductory guide, edited by Gwendolyn R. Fife. This is a 2021 archetype publication published in association with our friends at Sustainability in Conservation. I like the approach taken to defining greener solvents in this book. It's not a book of absolute truth, and I guess I like that nuance. Mind you, most conservation books don't offer tutorials or de facto treatments, so I don't know why I'm surprised by this, um, but it is refreshing to sort of immediately dive in headfirst into the uh, definition pool, if you like, and talk about why they've opted for calling this guide greener solvents, and not just green ones. It's all about context, and that really is key. Aside from the introduction and the handy glossary at the end, this book is comprised of three chapters. The first one is about considerations in defining greener solvents and conservation, and it eases us into the idea that choosing the most appropriate, yet least environmentally impactful approach is, well, the way. It's sort of crazy to think that we need to be told not to reach for the most poisonous thing in the cupboard because it does the job we needed to do, but we sort of do... This chapter deals with decision-making, assessment methods, and the types of organic solvents we use in our field. But Sprout is the gentle reminder that we should add a consideration to our usual array. Appropriateness for the job, so for example, does it harm the surface of the object, or will it work with my chosen consultant, must be tempered with the environmental impact. Is it the greenest alternative available to me? Much like when we shop in the supermarket or pick a mode of travel, we must stop ourselves from picking our old favourite, the cheapest or the poshest or the usual. We must look at the invisible label that helps us understand if it's also an environmental problem, because shockingly often we don't. The second chapter is a history of, quote-unquote, green solvents in conservation, And it's actually a potted history of solvent use, not abuse, by both the first restorers through history and by us as conservators, in the more modern sense. It also covers the gradual and sometimes slow awakening of awareness of health and safety concerns, as well as environmental worries. What I like most about this chapter, aside from the wonderful history angle, is the core ethos of we must use less. The time of plenty has been and gone. Only by reducing solvent use, reconsidering when well, we must resort to harsh chemicals, and being extremely careful in our usage cases can we really make progress. Nobody is asking you to go cold turkey. But much like we must drive less, fly less, use fewer plastic items, pollute less, we must also, I guess, solvent less. If that's a verb. Yeah, it is now anyway. The third chapter is called Practical Steps to Greener Solutions, and it's a deep dive into science with its many T's charts, but it also offers some genuine practical steps. It makes the task ahead seem manageable, though perhaps not easy. It's not a guide to what you should use instead of your toluene or anything like that, but it gives you some tools to look at your chemical cupboard in a new light, and that's a very good start. It's a good little book. It's well-researched, to the point... And above all else, needed. It's a slim book at 75 pages, but I firmly believe it's essential in almost all conservation labs, and it should fit nicely next to your Wells and Horry in the bookshelf. It's £20 from archetype publications if you'd like a paperback copy, or better yet, it's completely free as a PDF from the Sustainability and Conservation website. This is an essential you can actually afford, and that is a huge deal. Go read it! If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio in your event. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the c and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Misty. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're the c and you've been listening to Dr. David Lee, Isabel Griffin, Chloe Romsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for another episode about metals. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at the podcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and music is Spring by Didi music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. say look at that little face i'm having the best time watching hilda trying to nudge
1: the, <laughs> to nudge the recording equipment it's amazing sorry she's found another route onto the desk <laughs> <laughs> oh shit oh shit <laughs> she's gonna eat your recorder hilda.
0: hilda hilda is a high maintenance cat right now and i'm here for it <laughs>